Father, we do take this time to focus on you, on your Son, Jesus Christ, who in his final week spoke such amazing words of truth and life. And Lord, I pray that as we listen to him today, even as he issues out these woes, these curses against the false religion, I pray that we would take heed and follow after Jesus, resisting all the false and all the sin of this world, I pray that we would follow after you with great desire and longing. Lord, I pray that we would trust you, believe your word, listen to the words of Jesus, and listen to them with a desire to obey. And I pray for those who don't know you, I pray that you would open up their eyes to their own sin, call them to faith and repentance. We pray today would be the day of salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it's a blessing to be with you today. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 23. This is a particularly difficult chapter to study. It's kind of hard to preach, actually, mainly because the focus is on Jesus' curse of the wicked Pharisees and scribes. Reading God's denunciation and condemnation of the wicked is not the first place we go in terms of our favorite parts of the Bible. This is why few of us enjoy to enjoy studying or reading the latter prophets of the Old Testament. God pronounces curse after curse after curse for all their sin and disobedience. Usually we kind of avoid those parts of the Bible. However, as I mentioned last week, this is a passage of great benefit to us. One benefit is pretty plain. God can use passages like this to help you understand that you're still under that curse. If you've not followed Christ, if you've not turned away from your sin and had faith in Christ, you need to understand that you are under that curse. And faith in Christ, following after Him, rejecting sin and the world is your only recourse. So I pray today God will use this passage to put a holy fear in you and to see that you are facing a curse much like these Pharisees. Second, this helps us piece together, at least in some broad way, it helps us piece together the history of redemption. Why does God turn to the Gentiles? Why do the Jews reject Jesus? And even more precisely, why do they kill Jesus? How was this murder of Jesus, in fact, the greatest act of mercy that God had on the world? Now, this sets this all up for us, this Passion Week, this final week of Jesus. Third, and this application is probably the application for most of us, or many of us, passages like this help us see our own filth, our own depravity. Helps, helps us apply to our own sin. Even if we're Christians, even if we have believed and had faith in Christ, we are reminded of our, of our old man, or reminded of our own sin, sin nature that still creeps in, our old residual man, the flesh that creeps in and helps us battle the sin helps us see what God's attitude is toward sin. What is the sin here today? Who are the people whom God in Christ curses? We saw last time it was the legalists. Today His curse is upon the deceivers. Let me ask you a question. Who's the most deceptive person that you know? You may come up with someone in your mind. Some of you are saying, well, certainly it's my ex. Some of you say... Well, it's got to be someone big in history, like Hitler or Putin now. And you may be able to sit down and, and articulate why that person is the most deceptive person you know. You may be able to come up with a list, maybe a page, two pages, single space. 
You're able to find all kinds of things where they have been deceptive. But if I were to ask you to list those actions, that's the most you could come up with. But you know all about your own little deceptions, don't you? All your own little manipulations, which is a form of deception, getting people to do what you want without being forthright. And really, who is the most deceptive person you know? Well, it's yourself. Not just two pages of deception, but probably two books of deception. Deception in there every single day. We're all guilty of this sin. And so preaching of these curses, yes, it's to the lost. Yes, it's to call people away from the sinful religion of that day. It's to call those of you who are not having faith in Christ to have faith in Christ and to follow after Him and turn away from sin. But we also need this to open up our own eyes, and hopefully this will cause in us a holy desire to continue to repent of the sin of deception. Okay, let me read to you our passage. Jesus is speaking. He's up on the Temple Mount. It's the very end of Jesus' public ministry, pronouncing these curses upon the Pharisees, upon the scribes, and everyone who mindlessly follows them. It's pretty amazing that this is the last thing that he does in the public arena. It sort of wrecks a lot of false depictions of Jesus that he was sort of limp-wristed and weak and only always friendly and sort of preaching therapy all the time. No, here he is announcing, pronouncing judgment upon sinners. It's the last thing he does before his death and resurrection in the public arena. But Matthew 23, we're focusing on the next two woes Really, they kind of go together with this theme that I've looked at as deception. Look there, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 13 to 15, talks about false prophets. It talks about false deceivers, people who put themselves in a position of religious authority, perhaps even claiming some sort of title. Sometimes it is apostle. Sometimes it is leader or teacher, preacher perhaps. And Paul is calling out these false teachers. He says they are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise, he says, if his servants, servants of Satan, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, you probably have heard verse 14 before that Satan disguises himself 
as an angel of light. At the most fundamental level, in other words, Satan is deceptive. He's even called the great deceiver, Revelation 20. He deceives nations. He's been doing this all throughout history, all over the world. And here he disguised himself as an angel of light. Why? It's in order to deceive people. You know, the analogy of good and evil that we see a lot of times in the Bible is that of light and darkness. It's a powerful idea that, that God is light. We read a passage moments ago. God is light. He brings things to truth. He brings things to clarity. He brings them out into the light so people can see what they really are, things that are in the shadows that lurk there that no one really understands or knows. They're brought out, made visible. Their true nature is exposed in the light. And so God is said to be a light for us. He lights the way for our path. He gives us reality. He gives us truth. He gives us righteousness. He gives us light. In fact, John, the apostle, said that Jesus is the light. He came to light the world. He came to be the light of the world. This analogy, I think, probably was even more poignant back then. Really, most of history would have been more poignant before controllable electricity was available. Most of history was literally darker than it is now. You hurry home at dusk. You light your candles. Light is comfort. Light is love. Light is power. Light is clarity. Light is good. If you can create light, if you can metaphorically shed light on something, it's a good thing. You can bring the whole truth to bear. And so Jesus is light. God is light, meaning He's the ultimate righteousness, and He brings things to clarity and truth and reality. Darkness, on the other hand, is daunting, scary. Darkness is imposing. Darkness, parenthetically, is just like sin. It does not exist on its own. Rather, it is the extinguishing of what is right. It is extinguishing of light. Sometimes people ask, why did God create sin? Well, God didn't create sin. He created a being, Satan in specific, and He gave that being, Lucifer, the ability to choose right or wrong. Lucifer, with that freedom, extinguished the light of righteousness. He fled from the light. He tried to replace the light with his own power. And so this angel God had endowed with his freedom. He did just that. He violated God's light. He attempted to hide it. He fled from it. He tried to snuff it out. He is not God. He is the one to be credited with the beginning of sin and darkness. So sin is, in this analogy, darkness. Satan, the devil, is darkness. But Satan is not stupid, is he? He knows that people are scared of the dark. He knows that if he sold himself constantly as a guy who has hooves and horns and an ugly face, most people, not everybody, but most people would run away from that kind of creature. And so what does Satan do? Satan normally presents himself and his temptations and his will as light. He doesn't present himself as darkness or shadowy or rebellious. He presents himself as light. He doesn't unveil to the adulterer the utter devastation that he's bringing to his family. He doesn't present to the, the liar the, the tangled web that he's sucking himself into and all the cover-up that he has to come up with. No way. Satan presents his will, his temptations as fulfilling, as good, as even healthy. 
It's not murder, it's women's health. You heard that one? Think about that first sin. Satan said, you eat this and what? You'll be lightened. You'll know more. There'll be more light. You'll have more knowledge. Your eyes will be open. That's light. She looked at the fruit, and it was the light to her eyes. And I know we think of the snake as being bad, but remember back then, everything that God had created was good. This snake, what she would have assumed was good, as righteous, as pure as something that God had created, and so she wouldn't have done what we do when we see a snake run the other way. She would have thought of it as something good, something that is indeed light. And so Satan's not stupid. Getting back to 1 Corinthians 11, getting back even to our passage today here in Matthew, given what we know, Satan and his deception, this is the kind of thing that God curses. He knows that this is a big lie. He knows that God curses deception. He curses the deception of Satan, and he curses all those who are deceivers. So this is another kind of God, another kind of people that God curses. Last week we saw that God curses people for being legalists. They had developed a system, these Pharisees and scribes, to develop a system that promoted accomplishment, promoted merit, personal merit. Both things are really in promotion of human ego. It's all about pride, all about accomplishment, all about gaining power and authority, meriting salvation and so forth, which indeed is the opposite of the gospel. Today, we see that Jesus cursed them because they were deceivers. This is number two, if you're taking notes. One was legalist, two is deceivers. And again, just a reminder here from the very top. All of us are in the same boat. We're all with the Pharisees here to some extent. But for the grace of God, we're all legalists. But for the grace of God, we're all deceivers and many other things. So this is not given to us so that we would look down on the Pharisees and be judgmental towards them. Really, only Jesus can do that because he's the only one that was never a legalist and never a deceiver. This is not given to us so that we would be prideful and pat ourselves on the back and say, thank God I'm not like these Pharisees. No, we are to take warning, we repent, we find truth in this, find in our own hearts deception, we find in our own hearts legalism, and we find ways to repent of it and turn and follow Christ. Well, Jesus gives definition, and why I call this deception is because I think this is the fundamental sin here as you look at this section, these couple of woes. Jesus defines what these deceivers do. What do these deceivers do? Well, the first thing I see here is, A, if you're taking notes, they seek Loopholes. Deceivers seek loopholes. The example, example that he gives here is that of making promises. There's some kind of commitment or vow, covenant here. That's what swear means. This is not talking about cursing. This is talking about making a promise, making a vow. And Jesus opens by calling them blind guides. You blind guides. And this is somewhat ironic because a lot of the religious leaders of the day, they love to call themselves guides to the blind. We are here as light. We are here to show blind people where they can get water. We are here as guides to the blind. And Jesus says, you are blind guides. You're guides, I suppose, but you're, you yourself are blind. Remember Matthew 15, he calls them blind leading the blind. You're all going to end up in a ditch. You're not light. You're darkness. You're not light to the eyes. You don't even yourself know where you're going. You blind guides, he says. Woe to you. There's a curse upon you. You are guilty. Damnation is coming your way. 
Very strong, strong words here. Well, what are they doing? Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred. Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, what's Jesus describing in this passage? Well, Jesus is describing some sort of system that they had devised about making oaths, making covenants, or making promises. This whole system that they had devised was to subvert truth. It was to be dishonest while looking honest. They wanted to be dishonest, but they wanted to claim impunity. They wanted to say, no, I'm being honest. Now, we don't know exactly the details here. Either they would not make what they swore by public, or they didn't inform the people of their system entirely. Maybe they kept the, the rules of their system quiet. Now, let me explain this. It might have been that when they made the vow, in essence, they just were keeping their fingers crossed. A Pharisee might say, I, I swear I'll pay this debt tomorrow at sunrise. Sunrise comes the next day, the guy walks up to the Pharisee and says, hey, uh, where's my money? The Pharisee says, oh, I swore by the altar, not the gifts on the altar. Kind of like, I had my fingers crossed when I swore, so I'm off the hook. That's one option that fits the description here. I think the section option is, is probably more likely. They just didn't inform people or teach people or show people what this whole system was about. All these systems that the scribes and Pharisees had come up, remember Jesus had described them before, they'd, they'd come up with these things so that they could put a burden on the people that was easy for them to carry, and I think this would fit. No one really knew this system, and so the Pharisee in our little example would say, I swear by the altar, I'll pay you tomorrow at sunrise. Next day, the guy comes up to the Pharisee, says, where's my, where's my money? The Pharisee says, oh, don't you know? that if I swear by the altar, I may or may not pay it. If I swear by the gifts of the altar, don't you know this? If I swear by the gifts of the altar, then I have to pay it. Don't you understand that? Of course, the guy wouldn't understand that. He wouldn't know this. He'd feel sort of foolish because this guy, after all, is the Bible expert. He knows all about making covenants and swearing and, and what kind of promises we should keep with one another. And maybe he was ashamed. Maybe he felt sort of foolish that he wouldn't know the rules of this, of this system. He'd walk away kind of feeling stupid, but worse yet, he'd walk away empty-handed. That's probably more like what was going on here. What they did then is to create loopholes, legal loopholes. They were finding ways to be dishonest, to cheat, to lie, but they had a loophole so that they could say, well, no, I was really being honest, they just don't know the rules. It's like a large company that contributes to a politician and lobbies for the politician to add a loophole to some tax that they can get off on. It would never happen in America, would it? They're the ones that are fixing the system. They're the ones that create the rules and all the loopholes, and they've created it for themselves, a loophole that they didn't tell anybody about. That way they could be dishonest, they could lie, 
They could deceive and yet still claim impunity. Oh, I'm just following the rules here. I didn't swear by the gifts on the altar. I just sweared by the altar. What does Jesus say? Well, one thing, he calls down a curse upon them. Woe to you. We learned that word woe last time. It means a curse, an impending doom because of their guilt. You're guilty and you are thus cursed of God. Woe upon you. Second, Jesus points out the utter stupidity of their system. Why are they blind? Because anyone can see the folly of this stupid, silly system. He says in verse 19, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? This is kind of like the chicken or the egg type argument. You can't separate this out. Your premise is wrong. The temple, everything in it, the throne of God, God has God sitting on it. Your fundamental rules for your silly system are are crazy. They're asinine. They don't make sense. The loopholes don't really get you off the hook. Well, in the end, Jesus is calling upon all people, including the Pharisees, all people to be honest, to be clear, to be straightforward in our dealings. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, Matthew 5, 37. Don't play dishonest games with people. Don't come up with loopholes to excuse your dishonesty. Remember one time I was helping one of our singles purchase their first car. And we found a car on Craigslist or something, and it was a Corolla, and it was down by the Poly. We drove downtown. We drove over by this house and started looking at the car. It was a pretty nice car. I did notice some interesting panel gaps on the car, and I, I asked, I said, has this car been wrecked? He said, oh, not really. It was a little ding, a little, someone bumped into it, they were trying to park, and it wasn't, wasn't a wreck, just, you know, we, we tried to make, you know, the best of it. They looked and looked and looked at everything, everything looked okay. I said, well, look, let me just look at the title. He brought me the title, and you know what it was, a salvage title. I said, you said this wasn't wrecked. He said, well, I didn't say it wasn't a salvage title. I had to do the math on that for a second. Wait, you're right. You're, you're, you're technically correct. You didn't proclaim it was a salvage title, but you were dishonest. That's not right. You've, you found a, a little technicality to let yourself on and pat yourself on the back and say, well, I've been honest with you. No, you've not. You've not been honest at all. This is one sign of deception, getting ourselves off on little technicalities. We do this with our words, I think, more than anything. We do this with our words, right? We, we find ways to be able to defend ourselves, perhaps in a court of law. It depends on what the definition of is is. We come up with ways to defend ourselves by a technicality, but in all reality, we've been dishonest. I, I suppose the guy was honest with me because, because he didn't, by, technically, by technicality, didn't, he indeed did not tell me it was a salvage car, but he was dishonest overall. Now, that's what these Pharisees were doing. They were finding loopholes. They were finding ways to excuse their dishonesty. They were finding technicalities that they could sort of slip through on, still claim to be honest, still claim to do what's right, and yet be dishonest. Now, again, look, looking back at our primary application, why was Jesus preaching this that day? He wanted the people to have one more chance to, to flee this religious system that the Pharisees had created. He wanted them to turn away from that religious system that was all about merit, that was all about self-righteousness, that was all about ego, and he wanted them to turn away from that system and follow him. 
Well, that's what we should do. If you're not a believer, that's what you should do, obviously. If you're a Christian, you want to turn away from these things. Now, Jesus, the true light, He came in and He shined light on this darkness. Even though this darkness claimed to be light through deception, He shined light on this darkness. Those who claimed to bring light to the blind were really dark themselves. Jesus, the true light, came and revealed their deceptive way. So they should love and follow, the people of Israel should love and follow Christ, not these deceivers, and they should pursue Him repenting of their sin. Well, what else is true of deception? What else is the purpose of deception? What else do these deceivers do? Deceivers also, B, seek to mislead others. Now, these things go hand in hand. They seek to mislead others. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. These guys were guilty of what I call moral misdirection. You guys know what misdirection is? This is what magicians do. They get you distracted. You're looking over here, and then back beyond your periphery, they're doing something else. And that's why the trick works. Moral misdirection is when someone is producing what looks like morality and what maybe even amazing morality, and you're, you're sort of distracted by all this morality, and yet... In reality, they're doing something else behind your back. But what's happening here? In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, according to Mosaic Law, which is the law under which Jesus and the Pharisees and everybody in that day lived, Israel was primarily an agrarian society. Everything was based upon crops and produce and animals. So they weren't getting paychecks like we do today, at least in the way in which we think of it. Now, their income, so to speak, would be actual crops. It would be actual animals, offspring from those animals, produce, meat, vegetables, wine, and so forth. The nation of Israel, as you know, was a theocracy, meaning it was God-ruled. So the laws and rules regarding taxation were based upon this agrarian society. It was tied to the worship of God. This, all of this theocracy, all it was governed by God, but it was all tied together. Your, your tithing, your taxation, all that you did was all tied into one thing. The, the Levites, one of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, the Levites were in charge of all this. They organized the worship of God. They also sort of ran the country, so to speak. The whole system running according to God's law, that was their... That was their job. They were uh, the ones that were really to be like legal people, that were to, under, to help people understand what the law is and what the Mosaic law tells them to do and not do. They were the ones who taught Scripture. They helped with all the doctrine and the sacrifices and the worship. They maintained the temple, everything regarding worship. Among the Levites, a subset of Levites were the priests who actually focused on the actual worship and Scripture. They're involved in the main feast and think about even the Day of the Atonement, Yom Kippur. The priests, these subset of Levites, like the Levites, work full-time for this purpose sort of running the nation. Now, how was this theocracy, how was this government and worship system funded? God commanded several major seasons of giving. Early in the harvest, 
A tenth, that's, the word, that's what the word tithe actually means. A tenth was to be given of their produce. A tenth was to be given. As the harvest went on toward the end of the harvest, uh, another tenth of, of everything they had, another tenth was to be given of all their produce. So just get this in your mind. If you had 100 acres, at the beginning, 10 acres of produce would be given, and then you had 90 acres remaining. You'd give a tenth of that, so now you've already given 19% of all your income. On top of that, God had also required them to give a series of gifts, for instance, to fund the feasts, gifts to help the poor, gifts for the sojourners, gifts on days like the Day of the Atonement. All these gifts added up. Most scholars agree that tithe, though it's anchored in the idea of tenth, was far more than a tenth. It would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 23 to 30% of their income each year would be given. That's actually not far off of what we pay in terms of taxes, right? This is why I laugh sometimes internally when someone says, oh, I, I tithe. I think to myself, you're not even close. You're giving 30% of your income? Doubtful. Very few, very few people actually could pull that off. Unless you're, unless you're giving upwards of 25, 30%, you're actually not following the Old Testament rules of tithing. You're probably only at about 10% or about 30% of what was required. Plus, you have to start asking the detailed questions. Do you tithe on the interest of your 401k? Do you tithe on the proceeds of selling your house? Do you tithe on all the little things, all the benefits? Do you tithe on your health insurance? Most people don't. You want to get legalistic about it? If you want to pat yourself on your back about tithing, well, look what the Old Testament says about tithing and realize you probably fall short. The truth is most of us, if not all of us, fall short of what the real Old Testament principle of tithing is all about. And just to make clear, I don't believe this is what we're expected to. I don't think we're supposed to live up to the Old Testament there's not a one-to-one -one relationship of what the Bible expects of the Old Testament saints in that theocracy of what is expected of the New Testament church. Now, hasten to add, I think most Americans could afford 10% of their income in terms of giving. That may be a good starting place for you, but you're certainly not trying to live up to what they did in that agrarian society, in that theocracy. Well, the reason I explain all this is because the scribes and the Pharisees obsessed over this. If they were in the church today, they, they would be tithing on their 401k interest. They would be tithing on the equity of their home. They would be tithing on their health insurance that they were given by their employer. They, they were focused on these things. Any benefit that their employer gave them, they would tithe on it. If their employer gave them a pencil, they would cut it into tenths and give a tenth of a pencil to the church. That's the kind of people that these Pharisees were. Look there at verse 23 again. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin. These are dried herbs used for cooking, much like they are today. It's not talking about their crops. It's not talking about their produce. This is saying that these guys go to their spice rack or their spice garden, perhaps, and dump out the contents of their spices and divide it up in tenths. Begin this arduous process of dividing up these little seeds and leaves into tenths. But, Jesus says, this is moral misdirection. You guys use your practice of dividing up even your cabinet spices to mislead people into thinking that you are great and righteous and very focused on the law of God, when in fact 
you've forgotten the most important things, being just, merciful, and faithful. You don't even remember the law that you have strapped on your forehead and walk around with. You don't even remember that point. Tells us where their heart is, isn't it? What they do, they do to be seen by others. What they do is to mislead others. What they do is a form of moral misdirection. Their desire is to accumulate praise. Their desire is to look good. And so they focus on all, focusing on all these little rules and how careful they are to obey all these rules, and yet they're actually unjust. They don't have mercy. They're not kind. In the end, they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, it's not without a price. I want to make a third point. It covers all of our verses here. Just a point. It's endemic for all people who are deceivers. Do they deceive God? Of course not. Do, they, do deceivers deceive others? Yeah, for a little while. Usually people catch on. Who do they really deceive? Themselves. That's point C. Deceivers deceive themselves. I think this is seen most in what Jesus calls them. You blind guides, verse 16. You blind fools, verse 17. You blind men, verse 19. Verse 24 again. You blind guides. They are engaged in this deception. Ultimately, they're engaged in self-deception. This is, I believe, what Jesus was saying in that memorable quote at the end. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're, you're so focused on getting that gnat out of your drink, you're swallowing a camel. You're the one that you destroy. They become so focused, their whole system of legalism and deceit, and you've accomplished something. Maybe you've gotten that gnat out, but you've forgotten the gospel. You don't even know who the Christ is. And if you do, you reject him. You swallow a camel. They're so smart in doing all these things to misdirect, to mislead, to deceive, to build up their own reputation, they can't even remember the very law, like I said, that's in between their eyes. You think about Satan himself. Satan, the great deceiver, perhaps one of the wisest and most brilliant of all the beings that God created, and yet how stupid, how foolish is Satan to think that he can reject God, try to snuff out the light, rebel, and cause many other angels or demons to rebel, detract and steal from the glory of God, and think, oh, there won't be any repercussions for this. How stupid, how fool. He's really, he's really deceived himself, ultimately. Where do you think this is going to get him? I think even when he deceived Adam and Eve, I think he sold them this line of thinking. You'll be like God. I think that's what he thought of himself. Hey, I, I'll be like God. Such a fool. The deceiver is always, in the end, the one who's most deceived. Oh, he may pull the wool over somebody's eyes for a little bit of time, but in the end, he's deceived himself. They're blind fools, Jesus says. Oh, what a lesson for us, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit we have all kinds of deception in our veins, right? I had to admit this, even coming to this, I thought, you know, one of the ways in which I deceive, one way we do it is we manipulate, 
Sometimes we're not even aware that we're manipulative, being manipulative. I mentioned this earlier. It's attempting to get what you want from somebody without just talking to them and being forthright. You're trying to trick them into doing what you want or giving you, the, giving you, what, you what you want without actually asking them for it, luring them in to do things for you that you want without actually being clear about it. Why? Because you think it's harder to ask that question, or maybe you think that you won't get what you want if you just asked for it straight up. But this is folly. This is the sin of deception. It's greed. It's being self-willed. You're just piling up sin after sin. You're joining the scribes and the Pharisees when you manipulate. We do this, don't we? We, we manipulate people. We also cover up. We think we can go on sinning, covering sin after sin, because we can either offset our sin or we can sort of explain it away, misdirecting people and finding some sort of legal loophole. I use that, that word offset on purpose. You guys are aware nowadays that these big companies can buy carbon offsets, right? They can pump a bunch of stuff into the air, but at the same time, they can purchase, they can pay for carbon offsets. Now, many of them, without even reducing their actual output, they're just buying, they're just offsetting it, and so they're given a break. This is, again, moral misdirection. What about you? Do we, do we do the same thing? We try to offset some little indiscretion, some little deception, some little lie, some little course of your life. You try to offset that sin by doing something else, by covering it up with sin. We manipulate, we cover up. We find these loopholes, moral loopholes we can take advantage of, try to find ways to tell ourselves and others that it's not sin when indeed it is, get ourselves off by some sort of technicality. The truth is, down deep, we know we're being deceptive. Well, Jesus' whole objective that day was to call the people away from deception and away from the deceivers to Himself. As Christians, and as those of you who are not yet Christians, how do we do that? I love that passage in Proverbs 28, 13, which says, Whoever conceals, that means hides, covers, obscures, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. In other words, if you try to cover your sin, you'll be uncovered at the judgment. If you uncover your sin, God will cover you with the blood of His Son at the judgment. Well, let's confess our sin. Let's come to the cross believing and being dedicated to following Jesus. Father, we thank You so much for the words of Jesus these last few days, and they're hard to listen to. They're harsh words of woe and cursing, but Lord, they're to stir up in us a desire to repent of our sin, have faith in Christ, and follow after Him. And Lord, that is not just something we do as Christians at the moment of salvation. That is a way of life, to continue to confess, to continue to have faith in Jesus, to continue to follow Him and repent of our sins. So, Lord, we pray for those of us who are believers that You would give us a desire to abandon deceit in our lives, abandon this sin. In the end, we are only deceiving ourselves. In the end, we're only just piling up judgment. And Lord, we confess our deceit. For those who are not believers, call them to faith in Jesus. Call them to be people of honesty as Jesus was, of the light as Jesus is. We pray that you'd bring us to your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand for a benediction. This is.
inspired by Psalm 19, verse 14. Now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen.